This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm Brennan Sharp, Design Director of the ABA Journal, and I'll be today's host. In this episode, I speak with T. Julian Rankin, the author of Catfish Dream, Ed Scott's fight for his family farm, and racial justice in the Mississippi Delta. Over the past several years, Julian has been one of our go-to photographers for our legal coverage in the state of Mississippi. Yet, as the fairly recent ABA Journal cover feature entitled Side Hustle revealed about attorney avocations, photography isn't his only for-pay passion. In fact, he mostly deals with the art and photography of others with names you've no doubt heard before, such as Andy Warhol and Ansel Adams. Most recently, however, he can officially add author to his growing list of accomplishments with the publishing of his first book via University of Georgia Press. Julian, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. You photographed for the ABA Journal on a handful of occasions. Can you tell us what the experience has been like working with our creative team and going on assignment? It's been fabulous. And as you said, I'm based in Mississippi. So to see the scope and reach of the ABA Journal is really cool because you do get input and collaboration with creators up here. Um, we're in Chicago right now and, and then down in the Mississippi Delta where I was doing some photography for y'all and, and other places. And so to be a part of that that nationwide network of, of telling stories about but the legal profession, about the people who do such important work, it's a great thing to be a part of. Well, we're certainly glad you're a part of it. And uh, while you've proven to be a promising and nationally published photographer, your talents extend elsewhere. Can you tell us a little bit about your primary occupation, perhaps leading with your former position and what you do now? Sure. Well, I, uh, I'm in the museum field, art museums specifically. For eight years, um, I was uh, at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson, Mississippi, and did various things there, marketing and, and uh, some executive positions. And then recently, um, almost a year ago, I went and took over the post as director of the Walter Anderson Museum of Art, which is a, a museum on the Mississippi Gulf Coast in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, named for a intrepid and enigmatic artist named Walter Anderson, who's now dead, but who left uh, an amazing legacy and, and depicted coastal landscapes and life. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a down on the beach now uh, in the Gulf, which is the American Sea, as it's been called. So it's a, it's a great place to be. Well, it certainly sounds like it. What's it like to be surrounded by art on a daily basis? It's interesting. I mean, for one, people, I think, think of art as something that's very static and that hangs on a wall or is a piece of sculpture or something behind glass. But what I found is the real promise of art museums in the 21st century is taking that art and using it as an ignition point for community engagement to go out beyond the museum walls and serve students and um, people of all ages and, and really get people talking that dialogue and that interpretation that uh, that makes us all you know, learn and about each other, but also about our own capacities for imagination. And so that's what we try to do is, you know, and, and it's exciting every day. I have to ask this. Do you pinch yourself when you're able to privately view multi-million dollars of work? It's uh, in some ways, especially if you're handling it, which I don't do as much as some of the the preparatory staff who handles and hangs artwork. You sort of have to put it out of the back of your mind. I mean, if you are dealing with a Van Gogh or a Monet, and I've been around exhibitions of traveling exhibitions with those works in them, you can't make a mistake, of course. And so there's it's a little bit. Um, there's a little bit of anxiety, I think, when you, when you have those things coming in. But once they're on the walls and to be able to take a break instead of 
five-minute coffee break out back. You get to do a five-minute break walking through the galleries and seeing this work. And it's a great a great thing to have as part of the work day. It really allows you to to think a little bit about what really matters in terms of creativity and and doing all you can to put out good work that matters. Well, you actually uh, uh, touched on my next question, and uh, pun intended, I was going to ask if you've touched any of these works. Certainly with gloves on, you know, touching, you have to touch them to, to handle them. That's just physics. But uh, the, the most fun, I would say, is when you get to handle things like artist sketchbooks. You know, if you've had an artist who, you know, may be long gone and you have a cache of dozens or hundreds of sketchbooks to see that process and digitizing those, we're, we're going through a process of doing that right now. And that kind of stuff is really um, enjoyable and and mind-blowing because you get to see in the mind, within the mind of, of these people who have done things that are on walls and, and in museums, but then the behind the scenes. I think that's where um, I get the most satisfaction is seeing the untold stories and the things that people don't always um, see when they first walk in a museum. Yeah, I actually can agree with that. As a design director for the journal and also as an artist myself, uh, for Christmas I got Jean-Michel Basquiat's uh, sketchbook, just completely scanned in, and uh, it was it was kind of neat to just see like his discoveries and realizations, and he thought textually, even though he, he was known for being a visual artist, and so he, he wrote down things he heard and that he would later use in his work, and it was kind of neat to see him just do that. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting, even with the legal field, if you think about the presentation of what is a court case in terms of movies and film and television, and in the same way, what is an art museum, there are these very flattened perceptions of, well, it's it's the grandstanding, you know, uh, time to kill or to kill a mockingbird, these scenes. But what happens leading up to these calls for justice and these things that, that matter so much to the legal life of the country have so many briefs and months and years of, of work behind them. And in the same way that anything creative has a lot of mistakes and a lot of things that aren't in themselves exciting, but as a body of work, they're truly fascinating because it shows how people are able to accomplish this kind of stuff. You're absolutely right. And uh, I want to come back to that because uh, I appreciate you bringing in the legal aspect I'm sure a lot of uh, normal listeners are wondering about that, but we're going to get there. Um, but before I do, I just wanted to ask, who are some of your favorite artists, living or dead? Well, because I do work for a, a museum named for a particular artist, I have to encourage everyone who may not know who Walter Anderson is to to look him up. He'd have to be my favorite artist because I, I get paid to say that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I could go down the list of amazing artists, one who sticks out not only because of her photography, but because she was also an author, is Eudora Welty, who's a great celebrated Mississippi author, um, the likes of Faulkner and all the other authors who are in the canon of Mississippi greats, where I come from. But she was also a wonderful photographer. And so I think I, I enjoy seeing contemporary artists, but also artists who you don't expect to be making work, who may cross mediums. And I connect with that because I try to work in multiple mediums when I'm telling stories. Very good. So even though art and photography are passions of yours, you're also adept in the literary arts as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your new book, Catfish Dream, and what prompted you to write it? Absolutely. So I'm an English major. Um, I think English majors are going to rule the world. I have to believe that. And I'm also a creative writing minor. So out of college, I always had a love for the written word. And Catfish Dream, which is the, the title of this book, it's a creative nonfiction 
tome, um, this epic life of a black catfish farmer in the Mississippi Delta. And he was the first minority owner-operator of a catfish processing plant, which is where Catfish Dream comes from. There was a catfish boom in the late 70s, early 80s in Mississippi. And what happened in, in legal terms, which is part of the the arc of the case, is that he was among 20,000 and more um, African-American farmers who were discriminated systematically and personally um, by supervisors of the U.S. Department of Agriculture through their farm programs. And so when, when I found this story, which was in collaboration with the Scott family, Ed Scott and his daughters and all the generations of that family who were still fighting to get their land back, um, that's how I got into it. And it was just one of those stories that seemed to, to come from the Mississippi dirt um, in the South that I thought had national resonance because it, it connected to civil rights. He marched at Selma. He actually fought in World War II with General Patton. So thinking about James Baldwin and the calls for justice from the 20th century, all that resonated in this farmer's life. And so that made it a very interesting project. Well, it certainly is. And and what may interest our listeners even further is the uh, pivotal court case within the book, uh, which awarded several farmers like Ed Scott Jr. compensation for losing their farms to discrimination. Uh, without giving too much away, can you elaborate on some of the courtroom drama? Yes, and the the court case is Pigford v. Glickman, and this was in the 90s, uh, 96, 97 is when this all happened and ended up going uh, to court, and Judge Paul Friedman, who was presiding over that case, and this was in D.C., um, you know, admitted, and, and the, the record showed that this, you know, was in fact discrimination on an, a decades-long scale. The Department of Agriculture took uh, blame for this and, and, again, has made steps to try to ameliorate those. But the real fascinating thing about the case is that, like I mentioned, 20,000 farmers, this class action suit, when the case got settled, which was not long after it began, it did not grant compensation in and of itself. It gave the farmers the chance to then plead their case individually. They had two, two options. They could either get a lump sum of $50,000, and that's one track, or there was another track where you could go and try your case if you were a larger farmer to get the millions of dollars that you would have lost. And so the, in the case of this story, again, the late 90s, this case gets settled. In 1999, the consent decree comes out, and it's not until 2011 that Ed Scott Jr. gets his case arbitrated. So it was still another... 20 years um, until that got that got settled. And so that was really what was amazing um, about that is the legal justice um, takes time and the, the long arc of history. But there were there were some, again, it wasn't Atticus Finch, but there were some very interesting piece of courtroom drama. And, and that was another fascinating thing is doing the research on this and finding all the public records. And there's a lot of them. But it was the biggest at that time civil rights settlement um, in the history of the country. And, and also for our listeners, uh, they should know that in addition to profiling Ed Scott Jr. exceptionally well within the book, he also did an excellent job recording that case history as it pertained to Ed Scott. And uh, I think you'll find that struggle with, with several different legal team members fascinating. Also, I, I wanted to ask you that you got a fellowship to complete the book. Is that correct? Yeah. So this book was, it's part of a series that is published by University of Georgia Press, but it's an imprint of the Southern Foodways Alliance. And the Southern Foodways Alliance is part of the University of Mississippi's Center for the Study of Southern Culture. And so the Southern Foodways Alliance um, granted me uh, a fellowship in, I believe, 2012 uh, to work on this book. And 
Um, so I was able to go stay for two weeks at this writer's colony in Sewanee, Tennessee, in the mountains, and it snowed me in, and it was almost like Stephen King a little bit. I couldn't couldn't leave. I had to write, and that was a pivotal couple of weeks in, in getting the first draft of the book finished. So that's a important part, and the Southern Foodways Alliance, who does great work, has, has been shepherding this story from the beginning. You kind of alluded to this, but what was it like to have two weeks of absolute calm in order to get the book done? Well, you know, if uh, if you're not used to having two weeks of, of calm, that that's the loudest silence you, you can have. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was really wonderful. You know, Sewanee is a, a college campus, and, and this writer's colony was right nearby. And so to be able to, to walk around and, and be in this mountain landscape and then go back and write uh, was really great. I tried to unplug as much as possible. And, and that, just to segue back to the Walter Anderson Museum of Art, which we are all about trying to shepherd and propagate this philosophy of looking a little closer at nature and our relationship with the natural world and how we all get caught up in our day-to-day, but to be able to separate from modern life and to slow down a bit really has wonderful uh, benefits to us, and it's a little refreshing, um, very refreshing thing to be able to do. Uh, Since you mentioned uh, Walter Anderson, I did have a question for you about it. You recently wrote for the Oxford American Magazine as well about paddling to Horn Island, Mississippi. And Horn Island was also featured in the November 2012 issue of the ABA Journal as one of the last remnants of the BP oil cleanup. Can you relate to our listeners the condition of the island today? So Horn Island is uh, a really interesting place. It's federally designated wilderness, and this is another you know legal. If you go back in time to to read up on how these wilderness um, wilderness places got declared as such, but there was a, a campaign to protect Horn Island, and, and Horn Island's a part of these chain of barrier islands off the Mississippi coast, and um, it's another world. It really is. It's only about 10 miles offshore, but Walter Anderson, this artist, would row out to Horn Island and also row even further up to 50 miles to some of these islands in a little skiff, and he would be out there living with the, the alligators and all the animals and plants and painting them, and, and that was a big part of his artistic practice. But Horn Island and you know, in the story I wrote about it, we we paddled out in a 29-foot Voyager canoe, the same type of canoes that they used to be on the Great Lakes, the fur traders of the 17th, 18th centuries, and we camped out there. And one of the things I came back thinking about is these islands, the barrier islands specifically, protect the mainland from hurricanes, um, but they also experience these onslaughts of natural forces and then man-made forces like BP, um, the Deepwater Horizon, and, and all of the the freshwater inundations that are happening now because of the Mississippi River flooding, everything that happens in nature gets felt by the land before we people feel it. So being out there and seeing it was a way to connect to that. But it's, it is a pristine place for the most part. I think what's fascinating about it is that you still do find all this flotsam and detritus from the modern world, whether it's oil helmets from the, the platforms that are sitting out in the Gulf um, or just trash that washes ashore. So it's a little bit of a a prism to to show us what what we do to the land just existing, and I don't think that there ever has been um, a question if there's ever been pristine wilderness since we got here. There's always some noise pollution or some remnant of our imprint on on the world, but it, it's a beautiful place, and it does feel like a, a moonscape and a different reality out there. Well, we're glad to know that it's uh, in better hands than it was just six years ago. Now we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsor. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? Enter Headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. 
Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back to the show. I'm here with author T. Julian Rankin, who wrote Catfish Dream, Ed Scott's Fight for His Family Farm and Racial Justice in the Mississippi Delta. We've been talking about all sorts of things, from art and photography to his book and, of course, the law and their relation thereof. And um, I just wanted to also ask that uh, this was the first book you've written. Is that correct? Correct. And uh, we found here at the journal that a lot of times lawyers also fancy themselves as authors. So do you have any advice for writing your first book? I know that, for instance, there were several revisions to this book before it finally was published. Well, in my experience, I learned to write a book by writing the book. And I say that oftentimes when I'm speaking to folks, but even specifically in the case of this book about farming, and it's about much more than farming, but through the eyes of a farmer, if you think about the the plotting row after row process of going and up the turn row and, and back and forth and these endless fields that seem like they'll never get done, the only way something like that happens, which is akin to writing a book, is by just doing it. And, um, and I think that's true of, of anything, but in terms of writing, you really can't get trained on how to do um, how to write a book or how to make anything creative you have to be willing to write something that you know you're going to get rid of later but i think i I do really associate that with um, the character in this book ed scott jr who showed such resilience and determination over time i mean if he could do what he did and and fight for his life to get justice for the wrongdoings that he experienced well certainly i could go through a few drafts of of putting something on paper (laughs) that's pretty pretty noble of you so you know, speaking to that a little bit, do you think, because I found equally fascinating to the eventual court case settlement, Pigford v. Glickman, um, also the uh, World War II stories with Patton and uh, marching with, with MLK on Selma, do you think that those particular instances prepared him for that much longer fight for his own land, or do you think that that was always his character. I haven't read the book. I think it sounds like he was that way as a child, but I have to think that those those really big moments in his life shaped him somewhat, but but I'd like to hear from the horse's mouth. Yeah, and World War II, of course, starting chronologically, was, I would imagine, important for anyone who went, you know, of any race. I mean, to, to be part of that and the, the greatest generation and to come back and, and having done such a service to the whole world um, would change anyone, I think, and, and to be a part of that camaraderie and the teamwork that that required. But for Ed Scott, he was part of, you know, a whole generation of African Americans who went over to fight for their country and then came back home to, to Jim Crow, Mississippi, and to the South. And James Baldwin, again, to to reference um, the literary great, and he he talked about this this idea where it was like a certain hope had died. He used those words, returning home to risk your life for your country and then to have the, your rights not held up when you returned. But Ed Scott Jr., he did not, you know, make a big thing about that publicly. It was something he held in inside of him. He said when he came back that he was proud of his uniform, but he wasn't proud of Mississippi. You know, even when he had his his Army uniform on coming home, they still sent him to the back of the bus and, and let other people get on before him. And he was actually, when, when he was fighting overseas, he was, again, part of a a group of primarily African-American 
soldiers. They were called quartermasters, and they they took supplies out to the Western Front, gasoline and food and all the rest that you needed, that, and that Patton, General Patton, specifically needed as he was marching further and further uh, towards you know the German front. And without having these black soldiers who were braving um, these mountain passes and having to have their lights off. Uh, to get these things to him, you know, they couldn't have done the work they did to really beat down um, and and squash the the Germans once and for all. And there's a great passage in in the book which Ed Scott recounted to me when he's actually on the Western Front with General Patton, having delivered some things, and and Patton pulls him in to be his recon driver in, in a little jeep excursion. And while they're out there, a German sniper who was holed up in a church starts shooting at him. One of these few Germans who are still scattered about. And he and General Patton have to duck into a ditch to, to avoid the, the sniper fire. And Patton calls in an airstrike and flattens the church. And so that's the kind of life Ed Scott had. I say it's a, a bit like Forrest Gump in that any of these historical moments that happened um, seemed to, to reflect and echo in, in Ed Scott's path. And he came back home and, and did march at Selma and, and with, with King and, uh, and interfaced with a lot of the civil rights workers at the time. And just to say one more thing about World War II veterans – in Mississippi, you know, Medgar Evers, who was the NAACP field secretary who was murdered in 1963, you know, he also fought in World War II. And so many of these these uh, veterans, civil rights veterans, were also veterans of, of foreign wars. And so I think there is a natural connection to think about what does that mean? What does fighting really mean? Values? What do we want to put our life on the line for? I think it's hard to separate those for those generations of people. Oh, a very good answer, and and uh, I'm glad you you delved into a little bit about the book from the World War II perspective. I, I certainly found that riveting. That there, but there were several examples throughout the book that were, and uh, he really did have a Forrest Gump kind of life. Uh, I, you know, it's not the life of Riley, but it's certainly fascinating. Um, and so, I guess my next question would be, where would you go? From here, I know you've got some other projects in the works, but this is such a fascinating subject. It's sort of a jumping-off point. Where, where are you going now? You know, I, I try not to think about what what's next, but just be prepared for what might come. And the way this story came about was, you know, it was presented to me, and it crossed my path, or I crossed its, and just took on um, the role of, of facilitating the story. So I'm I'm hoping and hopeful that whether it's another book or, or other projects, that those will happen. And in the meantime, I'll do the creative endeavors and photograph for y'all and, and do other things that I enjoy. Um, you know, I was reminded, and just to to name drop, we're talking the Mississippi in the South and, and law. You know, when I grew up in Oxford, Mississippi, um, and John Grisham, you know, if we're talking about writing and legal works, you got to put him at the top of the list as for the success he's had. And he was um, living in Oxford, Mississippi at the time. And I've heard him talk about writing, and he, again, will will tell any uh, aspiring writer that you just have to think of a place that you know put yourself in these um, in these characters lives but he is a an, a perfect example that you know if you want to be a writer and you and you come from the legal field you know John Grisham did it you can do it <laughs> yeah I suppose you're right and uh, our our listeners and readers are certainly very familiar with Grisham's work he he uh, often makes our top 25 uh, novels every time that we make such a list, and uh, rightfully so. He's, he's written some amazing stuff. If we were wanting to find Catfish Dream, where would you recommend listeners go to, to, to look it up? Well, certainly, if you have an independent bookseller, I always tell folks to 
to get them to carry it for you or order it. It's obviously available on Amazon and, and everywhere that books are sold. If you just Google Catfish Dream, there's there's not many other things, as I was telling someone, that will come up on the Internet with those two words except for the book. So um, it's easy to find it. There's a lot of information, archival information you can find, catfishdream.com. There's a website. But, yeah, I encourage people to check it out. And, and, and more moreover, just to think about the stories that – exist just beneath the surface wherever you live. These are family stories oftentimes, and I think it's true in this landscape of wonderful podcasts and investigative journalism, all these stories that are coming up about court cases and unsolved crimes and just fascinating stories of all kinds that are being brought back to the fore. And that's the world we live in. These tools are, are right in front of us, and everyone's a storyteller. Well, that's certainly true, and Julian, we thank you for your time today, and thank you for bringing Ed Scott's story to light. Thank you so much. Yeah, we look forward to hopefully uh, hearing from you soon, either visually or textually, for the ABA Journal.